Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for bringing your people together to hear from you. We thank you for your word that you've preserved over generations for us to know you, to learn more about you, to see more of who you are, and even to see who we are as those who are in desperate need of your grace and mercy and your spirit working in us to empower us to live in a way that would be pleasing to you. We pray that this time would be honoring and glorifying to you. Teach us now by your spirit that we may live lives of greater obedience and worship to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. I've titled this sermon, Opposition and Opportunity. Opposition and Opportunity. Peter and John are going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, and they encounter a man who has been lame from his mother's womb, begging for alms at the temple gate. Peter says to him, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With the leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Then the scene shifts to the portico of Solomon, where a crowd gathered because of the miracle that had happened. They thought that it was because of Peter and John's power or piety that they were able to heal the lame man. Then this presented the opportunity for Peter to correct their misunderstanding and to testify of Christ and who he is as God's chosen servant, the holy and righteous one, the author of life, the promised prophet like Moses, the Christ, the seed of Abraham, the one God raised from the dead and the one God has glorified. And what they have done to him also in ignorance that they delivered and disowned him in the presence of Pilate. They denied and rejected him. They asked for a murderer to be released and to have the sinless son of God and prince of life put to death. But also the hope that still remains for them to repent and to return to the Lord, to their Messiah, appointed for them. 
who was raised up and sent to bless them because God raised him from the dead and he's now ascended to the right hand of God the Father until the period of restoration of all things. And Peter proclaims that it was the power and authority of the name of Jesus Christ that healed and saved the lame man. And it is that same name that will save them if they call upon his name. Peter's sermon addressed to these Jerusalem Jews anticipates and points to the promised restoration of all things, which shows how God's intention to bless Israel and all the nations through Abraham's seed is fulfilled through the glorification of Jesus as the servant, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and the only servant who can save. And Peter also states that Jesus is the prophet who Moses predicted would come for the people of Israel, and that and the testimony of God's word is true. Peter confirms that Jesus is the chosen of God, Messiah of Israel, the unique and specific promised prophet like Moses had predicted, the exalted and glorified Lord and King, who will bring about the period of restoration of all things in connection with his future return and the establishment of his kingdom, culminating in the new heaven and the new earth. Peter proclaims the promise of God and the hope that remains for Israel to repent and to enjoy the present and future blessings that they may know that Jesus is God's chosen servant to save his people. And the church, the church is the first fruit of new creation, demonstrating that there is hope, that God has done a work in his people by giving them his spirit. But also history is in the last days and the day of the Lord is approaching. And so the church has been tasked with proclaiming the glorious gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ to all. And with that comes joy. There ought to be joy in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ as we've experienced what he's done in continually transforming us. So with that comes joy for being called, for being chosen out of the world to be his ambassadors, to be entrusted with the only message of reconciliation, to be placed into his body, the church, so that we're not alone to be a beacon of hope to the world and to be strengthened and united together in love and truth and devotion to him. But with that also comes opposition. Also comes opposition and being hated by the world. And this should not surprise us because unbelievers are walking according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan, of the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, who are by nature children of wrath because the God of this world has blinded their minds so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so we will face opposition from the world. And we will face opposition from the world just for being faithful and obedient to live for Christ. The nature of our sanctification itself will bring about opposition as we become more and more like Christ, as we live more and more upon his truth, the truth we believe and are to live out will bring about opposition. The word of truth that we proclaim will bring about opposition. The gospel we preach will bring about opposition. But are we faithful to obey and to endure and to persevere and to do the will of God as opposition will come? We're in this section in Acts with Acts chapter 3, 4, and 5. There's this chiastic structure, these parallel statements that focus on what's in the middle. And so what we see at the beginning of chapter 3 to chapter 4, verse 22, which we're still in, we'll see we've seen a healing, we've seen Peter's sermon, and now we see opposition. And at the end of chapter 4, from verse 23 to chapter 5, verse 11, we'll see the same thing. We'll see there's a healing, there's a sermon, and then there's opposition. But what's in the middle? Chapter 4, verse 23 to chapter 5, verse 11. 
That's what is the focus here. God is making it evident that it's through the church that he's now going to do his work and therefore how believers conduct themselves matters in relation to the spread of the gospel. Bold, uncompromising, faithful witness. Courage to speak, courage to stand, courage to suffer for Christ, to preserve and proclaim the gospel. And how do we do this? By an unwavering commitment to obey God first and foremost, to fear him and not to fear man, to understand opposition and to capitalize on opportunities that come as a result of the opposition towards God's people. Why does opposition come? It comes as a result of faithfully proclaiming the gospel, of living for Christ rather than living for the world. In other words, faithfulness to Christ, being his witnesses in the sense of being testifiers of him, living in devotion to him, all of that will bring about opposition. Not that Christ calls us to, but how can we avoid this? Don't preach the gospel. Stay silent. Don't confront people with the word of truth, even while seeking to speak the truth in love, because you don't want to deal with the consequences of how they might respond. Don't seek to participate in the Great Commission. Leave it to others. Leave it to the missionaries out there in the field. But that's not for me to do. Don't make disciples. Don't engage in conversations with those around you who don't know Christ. Don't admonish. Don't counsel even in gentleness and truth. In other words, live contrary to the profession of your faith. Live contrary to what Christ has called you to be and to do. Live contrary to who you are as a Christian. Live contrary to who you are as a part of the body of Christ, the church. Who you are determines what you do. Who you are determines what you do. Matthew 7, verse 20, Jesus said, You will know them by their fruits. If you are a follower of Christ, a professing follower of Christ, your life will demonstrate that. Your words will demonstrate Your actions, your behaviors will demonstrate that. To give an illustration, a a duck quacks. A dog barks. Chick-fil-A sells chicken sandwiches. Car dealerships sells cars. You should expect that. A Christian testifies of Christ. Our position in Christ is the root and foundation and grounds of our practice and living for Christ. What is true for the believer in Christ directs and informs and increases infections unto our obedience to Christ. And if what you do is not consistent with who you are, then it might be that you are not who you say you are. Philippians 1.29 says of the believer, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. As certain as the fact that Christ is the one who saves you, so that you don't, so that you believe in him, is that you will suffer for his sake. Matthew 5, 13 to 15, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. If you are a follower of Christ and are in union with Christ, it will be evident. Jesus, before his death and resurrection and ascension, instructed his disciples about what was to come in order to comfort them, in order to encourage them that they may not fear 
and have peace because he knew opposition was coming. John 14, 25 to 27 says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. John 15, verses 18 through 20. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In verses 26 and 27, John 15, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. And John 16, verses 8 through 11, again, speaking of the Holy Spirit, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. And so Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before his ascension, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. With that comes opposition. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter 2, verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. But with opposition also comes great opportunity. And so in these verses, Peter and John are arrested and put on trial before the Sanhedrin so that we would know that faithfulness to Christ brings opposition and opportunity. First, we'll look at the opposition for preaching Christ, verses 1 through 3. The opposition for preaching Christ. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them, put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. We see that as a result of the gathering at the portico of Solomon and Peter's preaching, that the Jewish authorities arrive on the scene. They intentionally interrupt Peter and John as they are speaking to the people because verse 2 says they were greatly disturbed. This means they were agitated. They were worn out. They were unable to put up with any more. This carries the idea of complete exasperation and anger. They were most likely listening from a distance to what Peter was preaching. They were also well aware of the healing of the lame man that had occurred. And they wanted to put a stop to it, to all the attention that Peter and John were attracting, to the growing number of Christ followers, to gaining favor with all the people, chapter 2, verse 47, as Peter and John were doing, and really to the sovereign plan of God and the spread of his gospel. They were trying to put a stop to it. They did not want Peter and John, verse 2, teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They wanted to silence them. 
And who were these Jewish authorities from verse 1? The priests were the temple officials. The captain of the temple guard was the second in authority after the high priest. He was the chief of police in the temple area and had the power to arrest and also had oversight of the whole body of priests and activities of the temple area. And so these are people who are around the temple. The Sadducees were one of the key parties of Judaism, consisting of chief priests, elders, and priestly and lay aristocracy that lived in and around Jerusalem, most likely dominated the power structure at that time. They rejected the oral traditions of the Pharisees, considered only the written Torah of the Pentateuch to be valid. They considered the concepts of demons and angels, immortality and resurrection as made up, believing in no life after death. In Luke chapter 20, verse 27, it says, Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. And Acts 23, verse 8 says, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. And though they had no authority in the temple, the Sadducees, they were highly influential, being related to the leading priestly families. And so the priests usually held similar views to the Sadducees. They also had ties with Rome, wanted to maintain their relatively good relationship with them, So the preaching of the apostles could potentially disrupt that. And so they wanted to put a stop to it. They wanted to protect their political position. They wanted to protect their wealth. And so they firmly opposed any opposition that would come towards Rome. The Sadducees' agitation and anger at Peter's teaching and witness to the resurrection was theological. The Sadducees believed that there is no resurrection. And Peter and John are there proclaiming the resurrection from the dead because of Jesus and by means of Jesus' resurrection. Notice verse 2 says, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And keep in mind as well that these Jewish leaders had executed Jesus. And now the apostles were proclaiming him as the resurrected Messiah. You can begin to understand why they would want to silence their message. Peter said in chapter 3, verse 14, you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And verse 17, and now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. And in chapter 2, verse 23, Peter said, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan, foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him from the dead. This was teaching and preaching that revealed their guilt. This was preaching and teaching that revealed their sin, that went against their beliefs, and that was drawing people away from their false religion. However, this was political as well. John 11, verse 47, 48, concerning Jesus says, Therefore the chief priests, which the Sadducees, and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we going to do? What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, All men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so this early Christian movement and message would bring insecurities of a loss of their own power and authority and reputation. And so in their eyes, it had to be stopped, and it had to be stopped immediately. They did this to Jesus as well. Luke chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Jesus is teaching people in the temple, and he was interrupted. It says, on one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, tell us by what authority you are doing these things or who is the one who gave you this authority. So we see that this was theological from verse 2. They were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. 
but this was also certainly political as well, as it brought together all the leading and top Jewish leaders of the day to question Peter and John, asking them, verse 7, by what power or in what name, in other words, by what authority have you done this? So what do they do? Verse 3, they laid hands on them, put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. Remember, Peter and John went up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, which is 3 p.m. They heal the lame man. A crowd gathers around them at the portico of Solomon. Peter preaches. It's now evening time, and they are interrupted and arrested and put into custody until the next day where there could be a trial. They wanted to silence them, to stop the truth from being heard and from spreading, and to protect their own power and authority and reputation. Next, we'll see that even though there will be opposition for testifying of Christ, it will not and cannot stop the growth of Christ's church. In verse 4, we'll see the unhindered growth of Christ's church. The unhindered growth of Christ's church. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. There will be attempts to stop the witness of God's people and to silence God's word, but it will not succeed. It will not succeed. In chapter 2, verse 41, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches, and he says, and those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now the number of men came to be about 5,000. The church is rapidly growing according to the will of God as the power of God's spirit through the proclamation of his word is being demonstrated through the faithful witness of his people. And verse 4 says that those who had heard the message believed. The word heard means not just to hear, but also to understand with ears to hear. It can be translated as to be able to hear. In other words, to be truly able to receive and believe truth because of the work of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. This is the same word used in chapter 2, verse 37, where Peter preaches and it says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. In other words, they were born again by the Spirit of God through the Word of God, and so they respond in repentance and faith. And likewise, here, those who heard the message believed. Regeneration precedes faith. This is a work of God by His grace. God is sovereign over all things, and so God is sovereign over salvation as well. And so no one or nothing can stop His plan. All whom the Father has chosen to give to His Son, His Son has come to redeem. And his spirit will cause them to be born again to a living hope. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Statement of fact, Matthew 16, 18, Christ will build his church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. We've seen that despite the opposition for preaching Christ, that the growth of Christ's church continues as 2,000 are added to the church. And furthermore, it presents, lastly, verses 5 through 12, the opportunity to preach Christ. The opportunity to preach Christ. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, 
If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. We see here that opposition provides the opportunity for Peter to testify of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. The next day, after having been put into jail, Peter and John are put on trial before the council, as verse 15 states. And this is referring to the Sanhedrin council. The rulers refers to the representatives of the high priestly class. The elders refers to the senior officials and heads of prominent Jerusalem families. And the scribes refers to specialists in law. This was the ruling body of the nation. This, in other words, was the Supreme Court. In other words, Peter and John are on trial before the highest court. Verse 6 says, And Annas the high priest was there, Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. This arrest and trial drew together all the top figures of Judaism in Jerusalem to render a judgment about what to do with these two apostles. This was also the same council that had condemned Jesus and put him on trial, turned him over to the Roman governor for execution in Luke 22 and 23. Peter and John are receiving opposition from the same Jewish leaders who had executed Jesus. They are placed in the center and were asked, verse 7, by what power or in what name have you done this? And so their question reveals what they really cared about, their own power and authority and reputation. This is what they question Jesus about in Luke 20, verse 2. Again, tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? We also see in their very question a recognition that a miracle had occurred. They are not denying what had happened to the lame man. They inquire, saying, by what power or in what name have you done this? They are not denying that the lame man was healed. They are asking who gave them the authority to. And they raise a question that gives Peter a great opportunity. Verse 8 says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and this points back to Jesus' promise in Luke 21, where he predicted that his disciples would be held and that wisdom would be given to them. Luke 21, verse 12 to 15 says, But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you. That points back to verse 3, laid hands on them. And will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. And John 1, 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Luke 12, 11 and 12, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And here, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, heirs, passive, participle, signifying a completed one-time act with present significance, meaning that Peter was already full of the Spirit or that he already possessed the Spirit and therefore now spoke accordingly by yielding to the Spirit in obedience to the Word of God. And so we see the ministry of the Holy Spirit at work in and through the life of Peter. The Spirit emboldens, 
It equips and strengthens God's people for good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them as we obey, as we yield to the Spirit, as we live according to the Spirit to do God's will. And so given this great opportunity before the leading men of the day, before the Supreme Court, the highest court, what does Peter say? He says, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, if that is really the reason you have arrested us and put us in jail and are now on trial before you because this man is healed, then let me tell you something. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. And he doesn't stop there. He says, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 10, Peter says, let it be known. This is a present active imperative command. He commands them to know what he is saying, and in doing so, indicates that ignorance does not excuse them and that they are accountable for rejecting the Lord. He's demonstrating that he is a true apostle of Jesus Christ as one who performs signs and wonders in his name and who also speaks in his name with his power and his authority. Then in reference to that name, Peter brings up Psalm 118, verse 22. Psalm 118, verse 22 and verse 11, which is a known scripture among the Jews. Psalm 118, 22 says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And here Peter says, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. Peter states that the stone which was rejected, which means to scorn, to despise, to treat with contempt, which is evident in their attitudes and actions. And so he adds, by you, but which became the chief cornerstone. In other words, you didn't put a stop to God's plan. You fulfilled it. In Romans 9, Paul confronts the Jews of his day who trusted in their law-keeping instead of Christ. They stumbled on Christ, the stone God set for their salvation. And in Romans 9, 31 and 33, it says, Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And this is why Peter will declare in verse 12 that there is salvation in no one else, and that you can only be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other way. It is not by works, and it does not depend upon you. So how does this relate to the church? Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The church is the first fruit of new creation, meaning that just as the new Adam leads to a new humanity, Jesus as the cornerstone means that those in him are stones building a new temple. Ephesians 2, 19 and 22 says, You are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And so if Christ is the chief cornerstone of the temple, those who are in Christ become a part of that structure. And so the church continues 
continues the purpose of the temple in bearing witness to God's continued presence and work here on earth. This explains why we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit and why we are to glorify God in our bodies. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Just as God filled the temple with his glory, sanctification, living for Christ, growing in holiness, testifying of Christ, spirit-empowered living, demonstrates that same reality to a watching world. And so we see the consistency, the interconnectedness, the progressive nature of divine revelation. The use of the Old Testament gives purpose behind what the church is and does. And it all points to Christ. In Matthew 21, Mark chapter 12, Luke chapter 20, Jesus quoted Psalm 118 verse 22 to the unbelieving chief priests and Pharisees who planned to kill him. Jesus viewed himself as the stone of Psalm 118.22, who experienced rejection by Israel's religious leaders. Luke 20, verse 17 and 18, the ending of the parable of the vine growers, says Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Jesus appealed to that passage to show how the Jews stumbled on him. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, Peter will again refer to Psalm 118, verse 22. He says, And coming to him, coming to Christ as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they are also appointed. And then the next verse says of the church, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In Acts 4, Peter speaks to the religious leaders of Israel concerning the resurrected Jesus. And again, the message of Jesus as the chief cornerstone who was rejected is directed at the religious leaders of Israel. And so Jesus is the chief cornerstone and the ones rejecting him are the Jewish religious leaders. This tells them that they are guilty, but also that there is still hope. And what is the connection of the Old Testament with the New Testament? The stone of Psalm 118.22 represents Israel and Israel's king. While the stone in the New Testament represents Jesus, the king of Israel. This shows a connection between Israel and Israel's king in Psalm 118.22 with Jesus, the Messiah. In other words, He is the key and exclusive figure in God's plan for the restoration of Israel and the whole of his creation. That's why verse 12, Peter declares, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And next week we'll spend the entire time just in verse 12. And so there will be opposition for testifying of Christ. 
there will be opposition for testifying of Christ. The gospel, however, will continue to spread and Christ's church will continue to grow and be purified and be strengthened. And that testifies of Christ. That testifies of Christ and that will present further opportunities to testify of Christ. True evangelism, true preaching, true teaching, true proclamation of the word is going to have two responses to varying degrees. Softening or hardening. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 4, we see belief. Verse 2, we see rejection and agitation and anger towards the message of the cross. We don't know what will come in terms of opposition or persecution. And we do not go around seeking it and looking for it. But we do know that we are called to be faithful. We are called to be faithful in proclamation and practice. And in doing so, according to the will of God, opposition will surely come. And how we respond as we face opposition or persecution will make all the difference. Will we stand firm? with boldness and courage on God's word? Or will we stand down and compromise and accommodate to the world? We must be resolved to respond biblically, which is to respond faithfully to Christ. And take note here that Peter and John, as they were arrested and put into custody, awaiting their trial, they offered no pushback. They quietly submitted. Peter and John did not offer up any resistance during their arrest. But as we'll continue to see in Acts, this is not always the case. When it comes to the governing authorities forbidding what God commands, or commanding what God forbids, or commanding what is not theirs to command, then it is right and required to obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29 When obedience to Christ and compliance to a lesser limited authority collide, then it is necessary to take a biblical stand respectfully and humbly, and be willing to accept the consequences as both you and they will have to give an account. And we can take comfort and encouragement in knowing that opposition from governing authorities cannot stop the growth of the church, and indeed is a part of it. The church will continue to grow despite persecution and will grow because of persecution. They can try and try and try. Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And what was read earlier, Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2, why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. They will stand before the Lord. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We are to... Bless those who persecute us. Bless and do not curse. To not overcome evil by doing evil, but overcome evil with good. And so we are to pray. We are to pray for them and call them to repent and believe in the gospel. We must have compassion on them. Another thing we observe and learn here is that unbelief unifies all kinds of unbelievers despite their differences. The Sadducees say who there say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. 
The unbelieving world is united in expressing the truth in unrighteousness. They're united in being against God, against truth. They may not agree on all the different policies and how to come about and fix this world, but they do agree that they do not like God. And they will not bow down to him as Lord. So whereas in Christ, we are unified and are one despite our differences because of Christ's love for us. And so believers are to be united in testifying of the truth and the righteousness of Christ. We cannot be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth, with Christ as our head, we carry the authority to proclaim the gospel. And so we have an obligation to proclaim the gospel, knowing the opposition and persecution that comes with proclaiming the gospel and the opportunity for further witness as Christ builds his church through the faithfulness of his people. The only way people will hear is if his ambassadors, his witnesses, those who are to testify of him, speak and proclaim and declare that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. People must know that. There's only one way to be reconciled to God, and that way is through what Jesus Christ has done and accomplished. You must repent. You must believe in him alone. He's the only mediator between God and men. There is no other way to get to God. There is no other way for your sins to be atoned for. There is no other way for the forgiveness of your sins. It's only through Christ. The Bible makes that clear. God reveals that to us. God revealed that to Israel over and over and over again. And now he's using his people, the apostles, to proclaim to the very people who executed and had Christ put on trial, sent to the Roman governor to die. He's still offering up hope, still declaring that same message, you're sinners, you're guilty. Yet if you turn to Christ, you will be saved. That is good news. We know that good news. We've been entrusted with that good news. We've been called for this very purpose to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. May that be a joy and delight for us to do, to be his servants, to be his slaves, to be his ambassadors because of the message that has the power to save, not because of anything within us. God has given us his spirit, the authority of Christ working in and through us to be able to proclaim the gospel And we have his word of truth and the power of his spirit to strengthen us and to sustain us and to help us to endure and persevere as persecution and opposition comes. Gives us opportunities to obey him, to stand firm on the truth, to be convinced of what we believe, to be assured of our salvation, to grow in Christ-likeness as Christ has set the example before us. May we follow him faithfully and proclaim him faithfully. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the joy that it brings in the good news that is offered in your son, Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, his perfect righteousness, that we may be justified fully and completely in your sight, with the power of your spirit working in and through us day by day to 
conform us and transform us to be more like you, that we may be more bold and zealous in our proclamation of you as we stand upon your word. Thank you that though we are not always faithful, not always obedient, that you are faithful. And in that, we take great comfort and encouragement, knowing that you are faithful to fulfill all of your promises to us and to your people. Help us to look to you. Help us to look to who you are. Help us to look to who we are in your Son, Jesus Christ. And may that and his love and your love, which is unchanging and perfect, cause us to bear much fruit for your kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.